welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast where we cover 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade. This is our third volume, where we are covering movies released between 1990 and 1999. We are still in 1994, not for much longer. This is our 60th episode, or 10th of this miniseries, and we are covering Tim Burton's Edward. Matthew, how are you this fine Sunday morning? Yeah, yeah, 60 is a big number, isn't it? It is. We've been putting up the reps, and I also realise 60 is also a much smaller number than 75, so that's what's ahead of us. Yeah, I am good, I'm good. Stressed, tired, but talking moodies, always fun. So. I mean, yeah, that's thing. I, I'm also stressed. I have put an offer in the house this weekend. Yes, we are putting in an offer, possibly today, possibly while I'm talking to you. It's good that we've lined this up, like all the stress of doing this. We are so codependent that we must move house together. <laughs> but not into the same location. I'm no, sure... I could never live in London. If you oh, yeah, I'm sure wherever you're living is, is a lot cheaper than wherever we're moving into. Uh, well, let's not talk money. Uh, that's crass, but I, I don't know. <laughs> actually, no, maybe not a lot cheaper, but like... Price the, per, like, yes. <laughs> square foot. Yes, undoubtedly. Anyway, that's housing. That's housing. How is Edward for you? I've seen you have seen this before. Yeah, uh, I. so the thing would be, is the first time I saw this, I probably had no clue. I, I can say quite confidently, I had no clue any of these were real people, basically. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is exactly what my partner did. It was about halfway through, she was like, this is, like, really interesting. Like, it feels like, almost like a spoof of Mank. And I was like, we, you realise, like, Edward's, like, a real person, and Berlin because he's a real person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Orson Welles, obviously, I would have known. But, I mean, while I now know for sure. I think a general... Like, this is such a blind spot for me, this sort of pulpy, cult, quite frankly, shit era of, of American filmmaking that it is homaging gently. And, like, you know, even something as simple as, like, I look at Vampira, Vampira, and I'm like, oh, it's like Elvira. And it's like, oh, no, 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 this is who Elvira ripped off and got sued over. Stuff like that. So I think... I don't know if, like, you know, being American and being a little bit older, this would have even more of a fun layer I, I, to it. I, but. I feel like we missed out on the generation where yeah. when they played movies on TV it would tend to be like, if you were wanting to watch horror movies, all this stuff used to be really cheap and it would just mm-hmm. be like thrown on the air. And so if you're someone who's like staying up late it's just showing on TV, whereas we're getting to a point where like, when we're watching stuff in the 90s, everyone's like airing the 70s, 80s, early 90s stuff. Whereas yeah. back when a lot of the people involved in this movie are growing up, they're probably growing up watching 50s B-movies. Like I, I have more familiarity with Vincent Price, John Waters, these kinds of people is this like the generation before, basically? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I would say so. I mean, yeah. like obviously, I mean, Martin Lando is part of the generation, but he's still it's that weird thing where like he was in movies in the 1950s when this is set in like Alfred Hitchcock's movies and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. this is obviously a a homage to a different genre of film than what Martin Lando was doing. So this is Tim Burton. This is mm-hmm. sort of Tim Burton's decade. Yes, quite the guy. Builds his rep in the 90s and then coasts. Is <laughs> is my. Uh... Harsh opinion. I have gone on record as not a big fan of Tim Burton. It's going to be similar with Johnny Depp. Also, whenever Johnny Depp's name has come up on this podcast, I'm almost entirely 100% certain I have just said something derogatory about him. But I think with both of them, they disappear up their own ass once they become very popular. <laughs> the thing is, because like, Tim Burton is kind of at this point doing like a one for me, one for you. He does a studio hit like Batman, and then he goes and takes that cachet and makes Edward's hands, which is... Yeah, I like I like Edward's hands. But it does feel like, at this point in his career, like he is alternating between these huge hits mm. and these little independent things that do become popular. You don't get to make a movie like Nightmare Before Christmas and stick your name before it unless you have <laughs> some cachet. That one still to this day bothers me a little bit because it's always called Tim Burton's Night. And it's like, he didn't write it, he didn't direct it. Yes, he designed a lot of the characters and yes, he executive produced it and it's his vision. But like, it really bothers me when people get over-credited for things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like and I, I mean that's the another way. Like I love Henry Selick. I think Henry Selick is one of the the greatest like stop motion animation directors. And yeah. it's sad that like continually we. I, I mean, I get it. You you've put his name on it because it's it helps, and names need to be attached to things to sell movies and stuff. But I just yeah, for a lot of people, like, oh, what's your favorite Tim Burton movie? Oh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Okay, pick another one. So, is there another Tim Burton movie you would have let me have on this list? Because I don't think there's another movie. That I <laughs> let is such a harsh term. But yeah, but, but I, I don't. That's the I don't think there's another Tim Burton movie from this decade that I would I, discuss I, at this length. I enjoy Edward Scissorhands. I would potentially raise an eyebrow at seeing it on the list. I would talk about it. I just it would feel like a bit of a of an outlier and like really that one. 
Whereas this at least has more interesting things going on in the history of film. Yeah, I, I think this is a career thing that I would have loved Tim Burton to kind of settle into. Continuing to do his movies about weirdos without the kind of over-reliance on production design and CGI and stuff like yeah. that, which, which he kind of ascends into. Like, Mars Attacks is obviously a very Marmite movie for people. Sleepy Hollow kind of, like, feels like it's going the wrong way, but still buoyed by it being, like, just a, a decent adaptation of that story. And then he's got Awful yeah. Planet of the Apes. <laughs> he's got Awful Planet of the Apes, which feels like this career shift point where, like, some people will, will stump for Big Fish, but Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, Sweeney Todd, Alice in Wonderland's Dark Shadows, Frank and Weenie, Big Eyes, Miss Peregrine, Dumbo, they're all, like... There's a level of ugh to every one of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think my most, my favourite of those is, like, Dumbo or Sweeney Todd, and it's, like, a very, like, half-hearted, like, yay kind of thing, yeah, rather, than, yeah. rather than an actual serious, like, stumping, thinking they're good movies. And it goes hand-in-hand hand with Johnny Depp and he become joined completely at the hip. And, like, you know, it's not they hadn't worked together already, and, and that they wouldn't into the 90s, but it just, it felt like almost neither could do a movie without the other. And that's not, that's not true, because Depp is putting out probably one to two movies a year for a decade and no director is doing that but you know in terms of the big things that are like the career bullet points it's like oh look another Tim Burton Johnny Depp movie where Johnny Depp is going to wear an intense amount of makeup or prosthetics and some CGI assistance and all this and it's just going to be the same shit all the time and I couldn't help but immediately almost from the very first scene I think one of my first notes was if Johnny Depp made more stuff like this I wouldn't hate him Mm. He's capable of generating sympathy and empathy and comedy instead of just being, look at the clown man, do the, like, oh, look, he's so lost in the role. It's like, yeah, but you realise they're all just, like, one degree adjacent of Jack Sparrow, right? That is the thing, is Jack Sparrow kind of tanks his career in terms of what he does, in that he does massive, over-the-top characters, as you say, these things with empathy and whatnot. And, like, it's incredible that Pirates of the Caribbean works as well as it does in that first movie, because all they do is they basically take, Johnny Depp, you do not have to support the plot. You are here functionally to be charismatic and yeah. to be comedic side character. Orlando Bloom and Keira Knightley are going to do the plot and the actual like, heavy lifting over there. You yeah. just get to come in and just kind of do your thing. And then it takes off with this thing where he gets the Academy Award nomination on the back of that. Mm-hmm. And, and for like, like a few years, Pirates is the biggest thing in the world. Exactly. And and they pivot Jack Sparrow into being the lead of the movies, who's got like actual like stakes of the plot. And it's just like... I know, I know. That, it's always the way. They, they take the character that is popular and then they recenter the universe around them and say, but that's why they worked because they didn't do that. And now suddenly Jack Sparrow is the immortal hero is who comes back from death and is the chosen one. And it's like, no, no, no. He should just be chaos that blows through to liven things up every five to ten minutes or whatever. You look at Johnny Depp's 90s career and obviously Johnny Depp was a huge movie star or huge movie star in the 90s but it feels like he was more of a star for tabloid exploits <laughs> like he was more about like he's dating Winona Ryder he's dating Kate Moss he's dating or like getting married to Vanessa Patisse or whatever like mm-hmm. that is what people were interested in and the movies were like this side project that no one was going to go see case in point this movie making almost no money but like <laughs> he is not a person who is generating hits he's a person who's generating like front page news and stuff like that and, and that's so funny because Edward Scissorhands comes out in 1990 and it feels like entirely the blueprint for all of this that will happen later and it goes like over a decade before slipping back into that mode and people just I guess there just wasn't an appetite for it then or it's like oh that was fun now let's leave it be because you know I feel like I count on one hand the number of movies he's made in the last like 15 years where it's just here's just a man and that's kind of all he's making at this point like he's making Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and he's making Donnie Brasco and Once Upon time in Mexico and Blow and Chocolat and all these like actually good movies where he's just acting his ass off. He's doing best acting, not most acting, I suppose is what I'm getting. You know, we, we, I think we've used that term before, but like every time a trailer drops for anything remotely like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, all that shit, I just, I just sigh and I'm like, Ugh. I mean, how much of his recent career is based on the fact that he just has no money? He's <laughs> funding like his alcohol and drug use, and yeah. he's funding high-profile relationship dissolutions and stuff like that, and, yeah. and, and, and legal issues. Like, it, it, and they paid him like a hundred million dollars to do Pirates Five, I think it was. Yeah, there's been a fifth. There was a fifth Pirates movie. And there's I a sixth one coming, right? With Potentially. I mean, Robbie. Knows, but she's been fired. I mean, he's obviously been fired from Fantastic Beasts at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
what a time. Hundreds million dollars. I know those movies were huge ones. You have dramatically overpaid. I remember stories of when he was filming one of the Pirates movies, and it was like, oh yeah, he like goes to the same sandwich shop every day and like buys everyone in the shop like sandwiches and stuff like that. And it feels like we're so far away from Johnny Depp being like almost down to earth, charismatic presence. I don't know if it is just. But every now and then they'll they'll trot out some footage of him visiting a child in hospital in the full Jack Sparrow outfit, and you're like, all right. I mean, I feel a dick for saying you're a dick, but. You definitely are a dick. <laughs> oh my god, is he the lead in Sherlock Gnomes? I can't remember. Possibly. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, I need to get off his filmography right now. That's going to fuck yeah. me up. But yeah, yeah, to loop back around, yeah, he is real good. It's like, this is this is what I want both Burton and Depp to be doing, is yeah. just make a love story to weirdos. Don't try and put your weirdo ideas down on the screen. Like, find more people like this. But obviously, like, there aren't many people like Edward in the history of the world, so you're no. not exactly going to do... <laughs> do another sequel to this or anything like that unless you're going to do Edward 2 and he's just directing porn. Yeah, which they just gloss right on over at the end. <laughs> he became an alcoholic who did a lot of porn and then he died. Matthew. Yeah, hi. Let's do some background information before we actually dive into the film proper. Sure, sure. So, so give me some 1994 background context. I think we've got box office and Oscars to cover off this one. We do. So as you alluded to, this makes piss all money. Less than six million dollars. The budget was 18, which is part of how they got it greenlit in the first place. Did, like it, I, Maybe you'll go over some of this, but yeah, it, it went through various studios and then was seen as a low financial risk. But then, surprise, <laughs> it made less than a third of its budget. But yeah, it, it doesn't do well. Opening weekend, it opens at 16th. So that's two in a row now. I don't think we've had many that didn't open in at least the top 10 on the show, and we've now had back-to-back ones. It opens below the Flintstones in its 19th week, and Jurassic Park in its 69th week. Nice. Number one that week was The River Wild, and then you got Time Cop, Jason's Lyric, Forrest Gump, Quiz Show, blah blah blah. In terms of worldwide, I mean, the juggernauts for 1994, I mean, you may have heard of The Lion King, you may have heard of Forrest Gump, you may have heard of True Lies, The Flintstones, The Mask, Speed, Dumb and Dumber, Four Weddings, Interview with a Vampire, Pulp Fiction. Wait, what's that last one? Uh, Disclosure at 11, Interview with a Vampire at 9, No Data Found for number 10. No date found for number 10. That top 10 could probably just... I mean, you wouldn't want to do all of those, but that would just be fun to talk about on this podcast. I I would never subject us to doing the top 10 highest grossing movies of each year. No, 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 no. You are correct. That that is a fun little run of movies to talk about. Certainly Stargate at 13. And then you have to go a very, very long way down the ranking to... Um, it's not on the numbers, basically. It is on Box Office Mojo, for which the data does seem to be a little bit skewed, because it's basically saying nothing made any money internationally, but this is all we have, so 137 is Edward. Two places above Airheads, though, which is interesting given the production of this movie. Five places below Mixed Nuts, which yeah. is what, Nora Ephron's third movie, fourth movie, which is a, an yeah. awful kind of like slapstick or like a screwball comedy starring Steve Martin. And in even more shockingly, ten spots below Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which was Ang Lee's second movie. Yeah, 16 places below Hoop Dreams. A, like, three-hour documentary. It's mad to think about now, but Tim Burton and Johnny Depp on a poster didn't didn't sell back then. But how much of this is because people look at it and go, like, well, who the fuck's Ed Wood? I mean, yes, which is how we started this conversation. Of, I didn't even know at all the first time I watched it, and I still don't... I mean, I've read, but I've certainly never seen anything he's made and I don't think I have a desire to unless it's like 10 minutes long by some some miracle but yeah like it is an era that like I, I have no concept of and I don't know how much is it like film nerds know who he is in the 90s I think it's but very much else? like it, it's it's your John Waters like it, John Waters apparently introduced Edward to John Depp and Johnny Depp got like obsessed I have to imagine Tim Burton probably being who he is was like obsessed with this kind of stuff it very much feels like again it's the kind of people who are watching reruns and movie blocks on, like, late-night TV that are seeing this stuff. I think 
Mystery Science Theatre 3000 was also instrumental in kind of bringing attention to these movies years later and stuff like that. Like, cause obviously, yeah. the whole shtick with Mystery Science Theatre is like, let's find public domain movies, let's find movies that are cheap to license and just to take the piss out of them. And yeah, obviously... and I guess I have, I've never really engaged with much like, like, some people are just super into these like low budget horrors and sci-fis and just sort of, Drek might be a little bit harsh, but you know, that kind of thing, there's like an ironic love of passionately made but terrible genre movies and, and, and it's, it's and just I, not really for me but you know go off if you... yeah yeah no i mean it, it's not my thing either but what i love about this movie and i think it's like the thing that without it it kind of loses all interest is that johnny depp and tim burton are coming from a place of like yeah this is like just a nice guy who like just wants to do what he loves we should all go into every creative project and endeavor that we do thinking we're going to make the next Citizen Kane. Mm. It is a really funny, but like actually quite poignant through line throughout the entire movie that like he's like, I am Orson Welles. Yes, like, he is like, utterly convinced they are the same person. And it's like, these are just the struggles you go through making your first movies. And it's like, yeah, but his first movie was Citizen Kane. <laughs> And your first movie was Glenn or Glenda, which is an intensely personal story for him. Yeah. But told in like a, a Tommy Wiseauian way, where like you just. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is the parallel here for, for modern audiences, isn't it? It's like, will one day, will Tommy Wiseau have this level of cult appeal? They've already made the movie, though, haven't they? They've well, already yeah, made yeah. the Disaster Artist movie, which is less effective than this, because I feel like Disaster Artist is a bit too dunking on him? No, it's not dunking on him, because like, Disaster Artist is still a good movie. I mean, obviously, okay. again, it's another one where almost everyone involved is some degree of, like, ick at this point. <laughs> but it still, it gets to the heart of, like, it's just about passion, but I think it's because it's it's an, it's based on the, the actual, like, making of book that the lead actor kind of, like, co-wrote and all the rest of it about, like, the back, the background information on it. It's right. a little too inside baseball, I feel. Yeah, and, like, is... Burton is very openly taking a lot of poetic license and changing things to suit the heart of the story, the heart of the character kind of thing, and like people that nitpick in things like this, like fuck off nerd. Like there are complaints of historical accuracy. Yeah, like, but come on, like <laughs> they do that because history is boring, quite frankly. Yeah, like I mean I don't care that Bella Lugosi's son says that his dad never kept dogs. Yeah. It's a fun little character trait that he if you just want, has a whole load of small gappy dogs. Yeah, if you want 100% accuracy, just go read a book or, like, you know, a documentary. Like, if you're looking for historical accuracy in, like, a full-on biopic that is theatrically released, you're looking in the wrong place. Like, those are people latching on to a particular idea or anecdote or something and just running away with it and making it a fun narrative experience. Yeah, you can't sum up a period of life in, like, a, a two-hour runtime because no. life is not like that. Life <laughs> is messy. Like, things are less interesting. You can't say, like, like there needs to be an interesting thing like it isn't interesting if Edward's partner knew that he liked to dress in women's clothing it's more interesting to have him do it through a script and then stand in the door and stuff like that like yeah. you take these creative licenses to to do your movie reveals and whatnot like I mean I, I, feel, I feel the hook of the entire movie is Johnny Depp grinning earnestly grinning like a child in the midst of being told he's shit, having things thrown at them. That's the movie. That's that's what you want to make a movie about, a character like that. And, and it becomes a character, almost. I love that the combination of this movie is do massively jump ahead at this point, is Edward runs into Orson Welles at a bar, <laughs> physically played by Vincent D'Onofrio, the voice done by Marilisa Marsh, who at this point must be well known for his Orson Welles impression. We were, we were discussing this over text, like, yeah, what yeah. is the timeline of the Marilisa Marsh Orson Welles impression? Yeah. He, he is doing brain at this point. Yes, and then, yeah, like Pinky and the Brain, his, his brain voice is based on the infamous The Peas commercial that Orson Welles just was like, why the f- this fucking shit? Why would you write this? And like, just criticizing. I watched, I, I watched the Beans com- uh, Peas commercial last night and yeah. followed up with um, the, the actual, like, whole, they just recreate the entire thing in Pinky and the Brain. They do, like, they do. They like clean almost- it up a little bit. But yeah, it's very, very inside baseball. But like, I don't even know if you would think like even now he must be incredibly famous but there may be a generation of people that like know the name Orson Welles and that he did Citizen Kane have no concept what he sounds like or or looked like or anything and have no clue that the brain is just that at length and like every voice actor out there will basically say the way you create an iconic character is you do an impression that is like slightly off 
he can do it more accurately. Like, this isn't just him doing the brain. This is probably a slightly better Orson Welles impression here. And then you make it slightly off-center for when you're going to do it for, like, a hundred episodes of something. <laughs> yeah, which which I do think gives it this slight uncanny feeling that I think fits in with the, the style of the movie in that, like, <laughs> you can very obviously tell that Vincent Genoprio is not delivering these lines. He's, like, but... covering his mouth a lot and, and, like, you know, there's a cigar and a drink and, yeah. And I, I guess I never really thought about that he does vaguely resemble him until I, I watched this back. I was like, yeah, alright, fair enough. There are worse people to cast to do this. It is a bit weird, though. Like, it makes it feel like a surreal interaction, especially, like, intimately knowing who is doing that voice and everything. <laughs> I think that's what I appreciate about it so much, is it is this surreal moment, and Orson Welles gives them this pep talk, and is like, the only movie I ever had complete control over was Citizen Kane, and mm. this pep talk makes Edward go back and go, I'm going to take control from these puritanical Christians. And... Yeah, and his other point is, the one I had the most control of, they hated, and they were wrong. And, and then, obviously, what does Edward make out of that? He makes Plan 9 from Outer Space, Yes. I think his most fondly remembered movie, but still fundamentally like just a complete mess, one of the widely regarded as one of the worst movies of all time kind of thing. Yeah, and like that stinger at the end when they're saying what happened to them all afterwards, and they probably <laughs> go over a few too many people, but hey, just like, yeah, two years after he died, he was voted the worst director of all time. And then that immediately gives him an audience because you get these people that like, when you hear something is the worst, they're like, I have to see that. For better or worse, that acts as better publicity for him than anything he achieved while he was living, unfortunately. The amount of, like, premieres that he would have and that they would be, like, full houses and whatnot, it's like, is this how it actually went? Because I know the... To do a parallel, like, I know with The Room, the story is that, like, barely anyone showed up to the premiere, or, like, people who did show up to the premiere, and then, like, after that, it was, like, playing in, like, shitty budget theatres, whatever it was, and, like, no one was going to see it until eventually one of the founders of Five Second Films stumbled upon it and basically started this like word of mouth campaign among LA comedy circuit about this movie. I mean I feel it's just a different time in the like Mike Starr's character George Weiss uh, or a real person. It's very much the business of Hollywood and like you have to sell a market and stuff like that so rather than you just take for granted today you make a movie you open it it's going to open in most places off you go whereas he's having to like do deals and then like you know wheel and deal a little bit to get stuff to play so i assume like he gets these sellouts because somebody has put in some amount of work to to make that happen but then after that it plays to basically nobody <laughs> and all of that is really interesting like for a character that like you know he is so far down the billing list uh, an actor who's so far down the billing list he has some of my favorite lines about like you know i don't make successful stuff i make shit and stuff like that this is my career thing i triple the amount of money that i put in but i don't do it by putting in any significant amount of money i guess it's actually quite similar to like the blumhouse model yeah nowadays yeah. which is like let's make these cheap fucking horror movies and like, nobody famous in them whatsoever on a sound yeah. stage that we knock out like 20 of these but like we'll, we'll pay a million dollars or two million dollars or three million dollars or whatever for them and like every fifth one is going to break out and be able to fund the next like two years worth of projects. yeah which is basically edward's pitch to the christian landlord of like oh you know make this and then that'll pay for all your other movies you want to make that you probably already have more money than, than we do uh, well, they, they do, that's the point. And, and, like, the business of Hollywood and it all being so... I mean, I guess that part isn't different. That part still goes on. It's just... Yeah, I, I think all of that is actually underratedly interesting, the business of Hollywood, versus... Look at this man just really trying in the face of abject failure. Again, again, it's it's the positivity that kind of makes it land, because you can do... And there's so many depressing Hollywood movies about, like, how hard it is to get work done and stuff like that. And it's just like, no, this is a man who is eminently not talented. Yeah. So thoroughly believes that he deserves to be in this industry. And the movie doesn't poke fun at him. Like, the movie, obviously there are moments of humour, like the scene where they're filming the movie and Tor Johnson walks into the doorframe mm -hmm. and he's like, cool, wrap it, print it, we're done. And it's like, yeah. it's life, this is how life is. Like people Yeah, and he's like, he's bullshitting a reason on the spot. He's like, he would have struggled with that door all his life. Like, he's just making it up and this attitude of one take, print it, no direction, no rewrites, just just go, is so oddly compelling because while there is a bit of a uh, an underestimation of 
of the production of movies, I think even the most clueless person out there would know that doing one take and, <laughs> and moving on to the next scene is not a common practice. <laughs> Shooting 25 scenes in a night or 45 <laughs> scenes in a night, like, and Paolo Lugosi's talking about it, and they're like, oh, he's a he's a real genius, like, <laughs> and, and, and the movie does this really nice thing where, like, I th- and again, I think it, it's one of the things that makes this movie so special is that, like, it just collects this bunch of weirdos. I love that his entourage is growing, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, you add in the psychic and then you add in vampira and 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 yeah it's like slowly growing by one person at a time and <laughs> by the end of it look at this this lovable group of fucking weirdos like that thing is like it, it's it's a, a found family movie like it's about like these are all outsiders to hollywood they're yeah. all people who want to be famous but they obviously don't have like traditional things that you would have and they all find each other and they're just like let's just have fun and make some movies like, yeah and and like that's part of why dolores leaves him you expect it to come from the cross-dressing because of how incredibly against it she is, but she does stay with it. I mean, she constantly makes comments and everything, but like, it's like, I can't stand this group of weirdos that you are just hanging out with all the time. Fuck off. And like, you know, him, him doing a little... It would be generous to call it a burlesque show, but yeah, coming out in drag after they've rapped on something, and she's like, oh my fucking god, I'm going. I mean, I, I love the construction of that scene, though, because you have Edward coming out in the, the burlesque costumes, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I think and, I would be doing a disservice to burlesque performance, but yeah. And then, like, Dolores is stood there, and then Bill Murray as, as Bunny Brackenridge comes over and puts his hand on Dolores' shoulder, and I assume he thinks it's Ed at that point. And then Bunny's reaction when he realizes realizes that it's it's Ed who's doing the dance and like he's in in the lingerie and whatnot. And it's like this like weird thing where it's like and then you expect that to be like the play into what's gonna happen next, which is that like everyone's gonna freak out that is a man in, in woman's clothing. Yeah. And then everyone's just like falling over themselves to applaud him. Yeah. And, and like, go for it, Ed. Do your yeah. thing. That's what triggers Dolores is the fact that like everyone is so game for it. I think she's expecting it to have this like kickback or people are like, oh no, you're a freak, you're disgusting, you're wrong. And instead and she brings it up really early with like like how can you dress like that in front of all these people and he's like look around you're the only one who has a problem and they genuinely are just like okay but no one bats an eyelid and that may be a like slightly uh, over generous or over kind or unrealistic depiction of how it would have been but like you know it is nice to hope that it was like this and they were just like yeah cool whatever I do understand that like Dolores is a little bit of a shrew and, and I think that was one of the targets of like historical inaccuracy of like being unkind to the real world figure but whatever but the thing is I, I, I mean Sarah Jessica Parker does it well I don't think she <laughs> knocks out the park like some of the other adorable weirdos in this movie but like she serves a point and it's a fun counterpoint to Patricia Arquette who plays Kathy in like the second half of this movie where like <laughs> she's like basically will you still fuck me yeah Cool, don't worry about it then. It's a nice, like, maybe not healthy relationship, but like, when he tells her on the spook ride, and he's just like, I like dressing women's clothing. And, and again, both, all, every single character is like, are you, are you gay though? And yeah. it's like, I, I don't, I don't know how invested this movie is in current, like, transgender culture or like, or in the 90s, kind of like, whether or not there was any inklings to say that, like, because obviously you get hints that Bill Murray's character at least attempted to be trans. Yes. <laughs> um, but still identified as male, apparently, throughout the rest of their life. And you never get that feeling that Ed Wood is looking to transition either. But it is interesting that, like, there are parallels towards a lot of, like, the fact that an awful lot of trans women are gay. In, yeah. in that way, where it's like, it, no, like, dressing in a woman's clothing doesn't mean that I'm gay. It, I still love women. But it possibly I, does mean, it possibly does mean you're gay, but it possibly means you're a gay woman rather than a, a gay man. I really wish I could remember what it was. I, this came up a few weeks ago, or, or, or something else we did and I can hear the quote perfectly in my head and I have no memory of where it is from but it's like I think it's a sex worker basically saying oh cross-dressers are, are lovely people who go home to their wives and and, and, chill, and are great family people or whatever and it's like someone is trying to make a freak of people who cross-dress and they're like oh god no cross-dressers are like the most normal people in the world they just happen to do this yeah but it, it, yeah no it is just the thing where it's just like people have their outlets and this happens to be Edward's outlet he's like, like I love women it makes me feel closer to women you know, and even obviously, even if even if he were closeted gay, or like gives a shit, like he's a cool, you know, he's like a fun guy. I think you know, you mentioned Bill Murray, who like with very little screen time does a whole lot. Just being Bill Murray, being that offbeat, <laughs> just present. He delivers my favourite line in the movie, and that, that I think kind of sums the entire movie up. Of like when they are all going through the baptism, how do you do it? How did you get all of your friends to get baptised just so you could make a monster movie? 
And it's like, yeah, that's the whole essence of this movie and, like, this character, basically. The wacky number of things that they all go through and, like, you know, stealing the octopus and then, like, oh, we didn't bring the motor. Right. Um, if you could just move its legs around and stuff, that would be great. Yeah, I, I agree. Bill Murray is, is great in this movie and his very limited screen time. I really want to know how they got Bill Murray for this. Like, yeah. like in, in all the stories of, like, Bill Murray being, like, prickly or not, like, accepting jobs and stuff like that, it's, it's not like he has a pre-existing relationship with, with Depp or with Burton. Yeah. But, like, they're relying on stuff like that. It's just like, yeah, Bill Murray's in this movie, he gets the Ams credit, he shows up for, like, maybe four or five scenes, and yeah. it's just a hell of a lot of fun playing this, like, incredibly high-camp person. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he really liked Beetlejuice. <laughs> no clue. They caught him on a good day or something. <laughs> But, yeah, Bill Murray's. Great. I mean, like everyone's great in this movie. I mean, like, as we say, like this is one of my favorite Johnny Depp performances. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite Bill Murray performances, but he does bring something to this movie, and I mean, it, it's certainly like just a show-stopping performance from Martin Landau. Yes, who we should probably finally come to wins Best Supporting Actor for this, infuriating Samuel L. Jackson, and, and probably many people out there. A hell of a performance, and and I guess while on the Oscars, just to come back to. Context half an hour later. Uh, this is the year Forrest Gump wins, raises a few eyebrows as it beats out Four Weddings, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and The Shawshank Redemption. Zemeckis wins Best Director, Tom Hanks wins Best Actor, but Martin Landau here, Philip Ledwood, does defeat everybody. He's just fucking great, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's so good. It's such a well rounded, empathetic performance. I mean, like, before we get into the actual content of it, Rick Baker's prosthetic works on him is genuinely incredible. I don't know how much of that is aided by the fact that it's filmed in black and white, so yeah. you can kind of cover it up, but obviously, like, I mean, Rick Baker, like, well known for. The, the transformation scene in American Werewolf in London, but yeah. like it's the prosthetics are just so good that like you know what Martin Lando looks like, and he does look a lot like Bela Lugosi. But just over the course of this movie, just aging him up, the increasingly making him look more and more sickly as his like drug addiction gets control of him. He's never once cartoonish or over the top. He's just this perfectly pitched performance throughout this entire movie. Landau has said that he didn't want to do an over the top performance. He wanted it to be like this was the final film role that Bella Lugosi never got kind of thing. I think it helps that it's like he talks like it all the time. Like mm. it's not that like ah I do my Dracula voice. Like it's like he is just a Hungarian man and he just talks and you know like he obviously is very into his own work and everything. And like I love every time Boris Karloff comes up and he's like that fucking hack. <laughs> it takes no <laughs> talent to play Frankenstein. The ongoing beat of them having to say yep he's still alive. <laughs> I think my favourite little stretch for him is that like I just alluded to like yeah you're gonna have to lie down with the octopus and make it look like it's killing you and that like just before that he's basically like can I just is it maybe you should take a nap and, and you know shoot up but that he's like so weak and frail and then he storms onto the side and like right let's shoot this fucker <laughs> and then he is told he's gonna have to make the octopus work and you're like this is gonna be awful and he does such a heroic genuinely a heroic job with that and then within a few scenes He's getting his like last big monologue about the atomic Superman, and then he's dead. And, like, you know, I, I think that's it. I mean, he's so good straight away, but I think that's probably my favorite little ten-minute segment for him in the movie. It's just that complete flip from like this guy's dying <laughs> to let's shoot this fucker. <laughs> like... I mean, it, it's that moment where like he's just shot up and like he's doing the monologue before they're gonna shoot, and he's like talking about how they offered him Frankenstein and there's this like real mm, yeah sorry I've left that part out yeah the like the real window into the soul moment of him being like you know he's always looked down on Frankenstein as, as inferior to Dracula and it's basically him regretting not taking it and becoming a bigger star kind of thing yeah sorry I stepped all over you there but I did no I no did no have, I, mean, I did have that, that written down <laughs> yeah. it's exactly what I was going to say like I mean I, I think Lugosi did end up playing Frankenstein but like obviously not the iconic Boris Karloff Frankenstein but like so many of these like early film horror actors they just kind of like pass the roles amongst each other but <laughs> I mean I mean Lugosi is very obviously like one of the most iconic ones I mean like, there is literally a song called Bella Lugosi is dead like <laughs> and I like that last little jab from Burton his memorabilia outsells Boris Karloff's to this day or whatever it's like I, is that true maybe I guess but and it's very 
obviously like a thing that attracts Burton to this or that keys him in on this part is the influence that Vincent Price had on him and getting to work with, with Vincent Price and everything. Obviously Tim Burton is more successful than Ed Wood, but yeah, it's a nice little art imitates life parallel type thing. You know, he happens to run into him and he genuinely enthusiastically loves him and he just grows on him. He's like, he's a good kid and just <laughs> he just goes with him and he does all this. He plays the when he has to check into rehab and like they basically he like checks in on that dark and stormy night and it's like he's genuinely scary in that moment and then like the horror like screaming his lungs out when he's committed and then being like oh look the press are paying attention to me <laughs> yeah it's just it, it's such a well-pitched performance in terms of it does all these things it's funny it's scary it's big it's small it's yeah. it's melancholic he's given a whole smorgasbord of acting and none of it feels out of place or like a, a badly pitched character and it's why I can see them giving the Academy Award to him yeah. over Samuel L. Jackson and it's not to say that Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction isn't an iconic performance delivered by one of our great actors in fact it's more disgusting that that is the last time that Samuel L. Jackson got an Academy Award nomination. Yes, I think that's the thing. It, it, knowing this was his only one, it's like, ah, oh, well maybe you give it to him. But if there were justice in the world, he would have been up every other year or whatever and he eventually wins one as a as a late apology to uh, for Pulp Fiction, but I I would give it to Landau personally. But my feelings on Pulp Fiction are well known. So the thing is, I would also give it to Landau. So well, there you go. Think... That's probably a more trustworthy source. Then we'll, we'll see if we get any kickback from people who might have Pulp Fiction as one of their favorite movies of all time. But like, I don't know Land... anyone who says that. But yeah. but but Landau is just is so good in this. Yeah. Like still casting such a huge shadow over it, even after he dies. Them trying to recast him, and they're brought. He's too short. He's too tall. This is an Asian man. <laughs> it's like I remember when he played uh, Fu Manchu. It's like that was Karloff, and it's like if he'd been alive, he would have fucking throttled. <laughs> One of the people tries to get him to sign a script and then uh, he just makes that like offhand comment about how he was Karloff's sidekick or whatever and he's like I'll fucking kill you basically all really good and then like the tragedy of like Ed filming him just outside his house and it's like this is very clearly just an exercise in like humouring him basically well I I interpreted it that way of like this isn't for a real movie you're just hanging out with your friend who wants to make one last movie and you know he won't be able to so he's just filming him in some generic scenes outside his own house and stuff and like you're in a rush could I not be in a rush could I just could I just be taking my time like yeah sure do what you want and then he does repurpose that for the final movie or whatever but it, yeah. it, it feels at the time when he's shooting it he's just doing it to humour him kind of thing yeah, I, th I think the movie skips over the fact that a lot of his Plan 9 footage was actually from another film that they shot that got abandoned that was like more oh, of a okay. but, but like I do think that like that, that whole sequence of him smelling the flower is like not from that film but like yeah there was a, a half realised project called The Vampires 2 where the ghoul goes west that <laughs> they had shot but like again you're, you're adding in too many movies like obviously this movie is not taking a, a holistic approach to Edward's career there's movies that they skip it's kind of going like well the three that people care about are Glenn or Glenn Ride of the Monster and Plan Nine, especially if you're going to do stuff featuring Bella Lugosi as our central point. Like, let's let's make the Edward Bella Lugosi relationship kind of like the center point of the movie, which I do think makes it really nice. In that yeah. it is kind of like a auteur with their their leading actor kind of thing. I, I um, do think like without it, it, it's a fun little earnest movie, but with it, it's got an incredible amount of heart and like high quality acting. Like, that's the drama of it, is the relationship between the two of them and, and what is happening to Lugosi slowly over a period of time. And the rest of it is the sort of fun, like, oh, isn't it funny when this happens? Kind of like, that's the centrepiece. That's how yeah. you obviously get the Academy Award. And, and that's what Disaster Off is. It tries to make the centrepiece of that movie, like, the relationship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero. And because Greg Sestero is obviously, like, a producer on the movie, he's a credited writer, they kind of can't get into, like, the messiness or the, the interest of this movie. I don't know, there's a more neutral approach to everyone even if it is erring positive I do want to call out like one of my favourite shots in this movie is when Edward and Bella Lugosi are watching his Dracula movies in Lugosi's apartment and mm -hmm. Lugosi goes into the back room to go get his quote unquote medicine and <laughs> the entire thing is like shot in silhouette behind Edward yeah. and stuff like that as he does and it's just it's just a gorgeous shot I mean like Stefan Zapsky I think he's like he was at this point Tim Burton's DP having done Edward Scissorhands Batman Return 
concerns Edward that this is the the last time that they work together and he kind of goes off to do stuff like Matilda and Bulletproof Month and not much <laughs> after this but it's like this movie looks gorgeous and it's weird that his follow-up is Matilda. Yeah, so you cannot say Bulletproof Monk to me without me just immediately thinking how the fucking stinger closing line, you know, the recurring line of the movie is like, why do they do more hot dogs than hot dog buns or whatever? And like trying to solve that riddle and he finally solves it at the end. He's like, you got it. Now you are wise. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Sorry, there are bigger problems with Bulletproof Monk than that. But Remember when Sean William Scott was like a movie star you could open a movie with? Absolutely I do. Absolutely I do. It was a fun time. And then he just vanished off the face of the fucking earth. Well, then he replaced Psychopath on um, a Lethal Weapon. Not Lethal Weapon. Um, well, it was Lethal Weapon. I was, yeah, he replaces a Psychopath on the set of Lethal Weapon where he's like the co-lead for the final season before that show gets cancelled. Yeah. I just feel, I feel Sean William Scott's got a like, weird TV show that's really good in him that'll like bring him back but maybe he doesn't I mean maybe he's got a career resurgence in the same way that Brendan Fraser does oh Oh, Brendan Fraser. Do you want to shout out, like, before we touch on, like, some, like, ancillary stuff, like, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who who wrote this movie, started off doing stuff like Problem Child 1 and 2 before they wrote this script, which sort of sets them on a different track. They do stuff like People vs. Larry Flint and Man on the Moon with Milos Forman. Then they kind of go back into doing, like, just weird child stuff like Agent Cody Banks and Percy Jackson. <laughs> and then, for whatever reason, they also created American Crime Story. They sure did. What a weird back and forth. <laughs> they, they go back and forth between these like intensely dramatic performances and then weird family fare. We hate that we're typecast after a movie we wrote and then we wrote a sequel to that movie. <laughs> well, maybe you shouldn't have written a sequel to that movie then. Very much a love letter to, to Edward from their perspective. And then, yeah, Tim Burton is originally producing, but then wants to actually... He exits whatever movie he was going to make instead, and the planned director makes Airheads instead, or is busy with it. And then you get this weird parallel where Tim Burton wants to make this film quickly, so he takes over directing, and he has zero rewrites done on the script, and it's like, yeah, let's just fucking make it. It's like, it, it feels very in the spirit of Edward. You mentioned earlier this movie's like bouncing around studios, no one wants to fund it because it's just fundamentally weird. I have yeah. to imagine there's reticence coming off the back that Batman Returns is is not a hit to the same scale that the first Batman is. It's because it's not as good. <laughs> <laughs> it's too weird and it's definitely not the kind of thing that like I'm not saying you can't tell that Tim Burton made Batman 89 but you can very much tell he made Batman Returns right that the opening scene might as well be Edward Scissorhands speaking of which Danny Elfman does not score this because they basically hate each other at this point some fallings out on Nightmare Before Christmas and whatnot I think possibly the score for Batman Returns the end of that little relationship. This is sort of the end of a lot of like, right, like it, it's obviously very early on in the Johnny Depp Tim Burton crib. I was going through and seeing like what what other collaborators kind of stick with Burton after this point, and there isn't a huge amount of people from the early days who are still around. And I, you do wonder like, oh, is it is it like is he too difficult to work with? Is he is he mm. this kind of like prickly person who? Well, who... I don't know. It just kind of feels like again there are parallels with Ed Wood because like both Depp and Burton basically were. They felt quite burnt out with movies and this they say how this like rejuvenated their love of making movies and it's almost like Tim Burton takes that final message of that you know, that that conversation with Orson Welles and kind of takes that to heart himself and is like yeah, fuck it. I demand full creative control of everything going forward, and for better or worse. <laughs> he seems to have some like interviews recently that feel like he's aware of the problems. Like, I shouldn't have made so many movies that are fully reliant on CGI. But I also think that, like, no one is going to see his movies, or, like, the critical response to an awful lot of these movies is, like, very repellent. Like, again, like, Sweeney Todd is probably his best received movie after, like, Big Fish, and it's just because, yeah. like, it's a big sexy-looking musical, but, like, musicals are also a tough sell for yeah. people to go see them. Like, I think that movie is, it makes 150 million dollars but like probably does a lot better these days <laughs> yeah but um it's just this it's weird thing where like he tries and makes his like small intimate drama with the writers of this movie with big eyes and no one goes to see that one either like no. it makes more money than this one but like i think it's like one of the few amy adams movies where she doesn't get an oscar nomination she has to keep losing forever it just feels like on some level he like really identified with edward while making this and just like put head down and just barrel forward after this and did what he wanted and like sometimes you do have to i mean it's not that he never made a movie that like he did still do a bit of the one for me one for you kind of thing like i can't imagine he was desperately passionate to make to do his take on planet of the apes 
that does feel like just I'll make it up five percent weirder, but it is still a giant studio movie kind of thing. But after that, it does kind of feel like as we move into the two thousands and twenty tens, it does feel like he's just making exactly what he wants to make. I also think Johnny Depp's star power lets him make whatever he yeah, wants to yeah, make. Yeah, like yeah. If, as long as I team up with Depp, then I can do whatever I want. Yeah, and you've it's got a blank of... check. You've got full autonomy. Go, go do. Yeah, and it is just like just unbroken five movies in a row with Johnny Depp after <laughs> Big Fish, and then they have haven't worked together since then and i mean obviously it's coming it's on the horizon I don't even know what Burton's doing next. Like, Dumbo is one of the better Disney adaptations purely in regard to the fact that, like... That's a low bar. It's a low bar, but it's, like, purely because the plot of Dumbo is is a 60-minute movie and they're done with the plot of the original Dumbo within the first, like, 20, 30 minutes of the movie. And then it's like, cool, let's make a movie centred around human characters who are just trying to rescue this elephant from, like, greedy circus owners and stuff like that. And, like, it's a little bit more hard to it. I'm I'm not saying it's great or anything, but there's more thought put into it than there was like Beat the Beast and Lion King, which is like, here you go, here's the script for the original, just get Beyonce and Donald Glover to read the lines. And uh, Emma Watson and Dan Stevens. On his little stilts. When will it work for him? He's so good in Legion and that movie where he's the psycho former soldier guy, apparently. Have you seen, have you seen I guess. the trailer for The Prince? I think it's on HBO Max in the US. No. It's an animated show from the creator of Family Guy, or not a creator of Family Guy, from the oh, Family Guy. I think I've seen a still image somewhere, yeah. Yeah, and Dan Stevens voices Prince Charles. It looks dire. And Someone like, was no. like, this, this can't be a real show, I think. <laughs> and Noah Hawley because of working on Legion are just going to be joined at the hip because it's like I know you're good I've seen the evidence stop fucking around he had the nothing role in Lucy in the Sky he was great in Eurovision <laughs> yeah he was he was great in Eurovision. Eurovision not a good movie Dan Stevens no. though absolutely bringing it solid opening number my pitch for that movie is essentially you lose Will Ferrell and you have it be Rachel McAdams meeting a whole load of gay people okay. at Eurovision lose Will Ferrell have it be like this woman finding her people at Eurovision <laughs> Yeah, okay. Being being adopted by the gays, yes. Just some straight thoughts. Like, I love the whole Juliet Lando, Loretta King thing where, like, at no, like, <laughs> just because her reaction to Edward going up to her and going, like, oh, it only cost you $50,000 to make a picture. And she goes, like, wow, a whole picture? That's so cheap. The complete misreading of the situation that she is some dumb heiress that has come out to LA and is dripping in money because he overhears. She owes $2.00. And she only has a 50. And then, as you said, that she says, oh, that seems so cheap. Of course I'd be interested in getting aboard. And then it turns out she has no fucking money in the world. She gave him the only $300 she has. And that awkward exchange where she's like, yeah, you better pay him. He's like, yeah, can I have the rest of the money now? And she's like, what are you talking about? And then they just have to they just get kicked out. Yeah, and he, like, he ousts his girlfriend from the lead role because he's promised the rich girl the lead. Oh, yeah, that is the other through line we haven't touched on, is that like he keeps on making these compromises throughout the entire movie, which does culminate in him just meeting Orson Welles. Like, every yeah. single movie he's like, people with money, I will do what you ask me to do. It just is a really funny like little misunderstanding as uh, as Drusilla herself from Buffy, and of course Martin Landau's daughter. Completely misread the situation, thinks she's a rich heiress, so then yeah, she's broke and he's, he's stuck with a bad actress in his lead role, he's pissed off his girlfriend they have no money. But he just keeps rolling with it. <laughs> he just, he just, he rolls with the punches. I mean, like, he even rolls with, I mean, again, one of my favourite cuts of the movie is, is Sarah Jessica Parker getting mad at him for, I, I think it's when she cuts, when he cuts her out of the movie, mm-hmm. and she just throws the fucking frying pan at his head. And then yeah. the next and scene, then he's, like, the next scene is, yeah, he's got the ice on his head, and yeah. She reluctantly agrees to still play, like, the typist or whatever it is. They do it, and it's this really awkward scene. And then he's like, oh, it's perfect. She's like, you got damn right, it was good, I'm good. <laughs> she like, just fucks off. So, and, like, I think there is an understated art to being an actor and doing bad acting in a compelling way. And, like, asking people, like, hey, can you not be good? But then, like, we all think we could do that, but you definitely can't. You're, you're too in your head, like, you... Yeah, it's like trying to act drunk. Like, too many people just do the exact same thing when they try and act drunk. And... Either you will be actually bad, or you'll be too good that it doesn't seem that you're bad. Is, exactly. is... But yeah, I mean, I, I just just a nice movie that I appreciate, and I and almost, like, kind of, like, the reason I wanted to cover this was just like, oh, God, imagine if Burton and Depp still did things like this. This is the Johnny Depp it was justifiable to like. 
and then the early days of Jack Sparrow before that just I mean I got no beef with it with those first three Pirates movies obviously they get worse but like still a fun time it's just what that in turn leads to and becomes and then you've got Pirates 4 and 5 and they're threatening a 6 yeah like like Gordon Vivinsky is a is an interesting director in, in his own right I mean obviously like casting Johnny Depp as a as a Native American in well in Lone Ranger is a bad idea but like the final train chase scene in that movie is just an incredible action set piece but it is just both of its leads are just incredibly cursed at this point yeah, and especially because Johnny Depp has a history of offending the Native American population who repeatedly are like we do not claim him we dispute any of his claims that he is of Native descent and everything any closing thoughts on, on this movie maybe? no just you know it is just like it just happens in front of you, and it's like, look at all these weirdos. George the Animal Steel, as, as Tor Johnson, the wrestler, haven't been mentioned, but like, he was marketed on being a freak, so I don't feel like harsh to say this, but like, a freak of a human being, can't take your eyes off him, and him like bumping into the wall like that is is very funny. Um, we've reeled him off just this cast of, of little weirdos who all just come together, and like, his repeated attempts to. Like, Vampiro seems she's, he's trying to bang her, basically. And maybe he was, but, like, you know, just... I like the little phone call of, like, isn't it called Bride of the Atom? It's like, oh, it's the same movie, they just changed the title. Don't worry about it. Oh, when they come out of the premiere and it's chucking it down with rain and he proposes on the spot, they have an open-top car or, you know, the, the roof is broken. It's been chucking it down while they've been in there. They open the doors and just all this water floods out. And he's just like, oh, it'll probably stop raining when we get around the street. And it's like right to the end, he is that just over-optimistic person. Um, I also love the amazing Criswell with all his, like, idiotic yeah. predictions, like... <laughs> and the movie does this final dunk on him, because obviously the first time we see him in the movie outside of the, the opening shot where he's, like, ascending from the coffin is mm. is him going, like, I predict by 1970 we'll be on Mars. And it's, like, in your head, you're like, and you got to the moon the year before that, <laughs> Oh, how do you make the predictions? And he's like, oh, Ed. <laughs> Good times. Wish both of them made more movies like this. Basically the first point we made. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is, is at the high point of Tim Burton's career. It's a shame it's probably the low point in his box office growth. <laughs> it is a hard sell. Like you're, it is a black and white two-hour biopic of someone most people have never heard of. Who made bad movies. Like, who made like, bad movies. Like, that's quite a tough sell, even for like, oh, I love Johnny Depp, I love Tim Burton. I would imagine even amongst that fandom, it's probably one they sort of skip over and go and watch. I don't know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory again. I'm now looking at, like, Disastrous. Disastrous just made $29.8 million on a $10 million budget, so it wasn't, like, a huge hit, especially when you consider, like, who's in that movie overall. Yeah, and their alleged star power box office drawing ability. There we go. So, Matthew, mm -hmm. let's wrap this up. So, next week, what are we covering? We are, we are entering 1995. It's a, it's a you pick. What are we doing? <laughs> it is clueless. An irrefutable masterpiece of a movie, and I will not hear a word against it, basically. Amy Heckling good. Yes. I just, well, yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll talk about it a lot. That's next week, uh, and I look forward to that one tremendously. Well, one away. <laughs> After <laughs> that is the big one. <laughs> and I am tremendously excited for the next three weeks of this podcast. <laughs> I think they're possibly the goofiest picks. Uh -huh. we've ever done for this podcast. You would think the dinosaurs would be the goofy point of the podcast and the rest of it we're going to do very serious movies. Oh, oh no, no, no. Jurassic Park is critically acclaimed in comparison to some of this stuff. That's all next week. So, Matthew, mm -hmm. will there be movies? There will be very bad movies that we will make lovingly. Just roll around with the octopus in the water. I'm going to start every podcast. So, okay, let's record this podcast.